I do think we're going to see kind of a, a very unusual macro environment for the next, at least call it five years or more. A scarce assets such as Bitcoin, gold, silver, certain types of other commodities or certain types of appropriately priced real estate, those scarce assets can hold up well in that sort of environment. Bitcoin was kind of born in the previous crisis. And I think this crisis, especially the aftermath of it with so much policy response, is likely to be very bullish for it. Servus and greetings from Vienna. My name is Anita Posch. Thank you for listening to Bitcoin und Co., my podcast that's introducing the philosophy, ideas and people behind Bitcoin. Hello, girls and boys, ladies and gentlemen. It's me again, your favorite Bitcoin host with the German accent. Welcome to episode 70. My guest today is Lynn Alden. Lynn is an investment strategist with a background in engineering and finance. She focuses on value investing with a global macro overlay. When I first heard her speak, I immediately knew that I wanted to have her on my show because her insights are smart, concise, and I learned a lot about the global and US-specific economical situation. Recently, Lynn wrote a long-form article about the three reasons why she is investing in Bitcoin. I think it's one of the best interviews so far on my show. I hope you can take as much away from it as I did. You can find a full transcript of this interview at anita.link forward slash 70. There, you will also find an audio recorder to record your feedback or question. If you're a fan of my show, please hit the subscribe button in your podcast player now and write a recommendation on Apple Podcasts. It helps to spread the news. Thank you. And before we start, a word from my sponsors. I'm excited about my new sponsor, Shift Crypto and their Bitbox O2 hardware wallet. I've known the team behind the Bitbox O2 for some time now and I feel we share the same values. We both believe in financial independence and that means holding your own keys. We also care about making it easy for everyone to keep their Bitcoin safe. The Bitbox O2 is a Swiss-made hardware wallet. It makes it simple to store and use your coins. I especially like the fact that they have a Bitcoin-only edition and I can use it directly with my phone. Check out the Bitbox O2 at shiftcrypto.ch. That's S-H-I-F-T-C-R-Y-P-T-O dot C-H. You'll get a 10% discount with the code ANITA if you buy a Bitbox O2. Local Bitcoins is one of the most trusted and the largest peer-to-peer -peer Bitcoin trading platforms in the world. On Local Bitcoins, you can buy and sell your Bitcoins in an easy, fast and secure way, always protected by escrow. Unlike stock-like exchanges, Local Bitcoins allows you to trade with people like you, and you can choose any currency you prefer and find a safe payment method to complete your trade. Local Bitcoins also offers a web wallet, so you can trade and deposit and send out your Bitcoins all in one account. Go to www.localbitcoins.com to buy and sell Bitcoin. Not your keys, not your coins is one of the basic rules in Bitcoin. Therefore, I definitely recommend using a hardware wallet, which is what most professional crypto experts use. For those who have difficulties with the technical requirements and constant maintenance of hardware wallets, there is the card wallet. 
The Card Wallet is a very simple and secure solution for long-term storage of Bitcoin and Ethereum. No software updates needed, it's 100% offline and it leaves no traces on the blockchain. You can give it away as a gift or inheritance. You can send Bitcoin to it and all you have to do is to store it in a safe place. The manufacturers are the Austrian State Printing House and Coinfinity, Austria's first Bitcoin broker, founded in 2014. Order your card wallet at cardwallet.com forward slash Anita and get 20% off. And finally, a shout out to the Let's Talk Bitcoin Network, where you can find other Bitcoin-related podcasts like Citizen Bitcoin, the original Let's Talk Bitcoin show with Andreas M. Antonopoulos, POV Crypto and more. Hello, Lynn. Thanks for being on the show today. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on because it seems you're on the podcast carousel at the moment. Every other day I see or hear you on a show. That's great. Yeah, I've covered a couple of different topics lately. So I've, I've you know, been able to share it uh, on a couple of different platforms, which is good. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah. It's always good to do some marketing also, not only educating people. So <laughs> I started doing my homework for our interview and I was visiting your website looking for your article about uh, why you invested in Bitcoin, which we will dive uh, deeper into it later on. And I stumbled upon an article about 12 tactics to seriously boost one's energy. I mean, that's a, a rather sidestep, but just for an introduction, it's a rather profound article. Are you a sporty person and doing a lot of sports and looking to improve yourself all the time? Yeah, so I, I've, I've done martial arts for most of my life. And so I'm, you know, generally pretty into fitness. And so, you know, most of my content is about investing, but uh, I also wanted to share that, you know, that kind of one article just on, you know, fitness and, and, you know, ways to kind of boost energy, you know, a little bit health oriented, but not really from a medical perspective, just to kind of share my experiences and some of the science. And that's actually been a lot of feedback from that article over the years. So it's never, you know, it doesn't really make the headlines because it's, it's one of my older articles and, but people find it eventually. And I get, I still get emails, you know, every week from people that, that, you know, saw that and some people tried some of the things on it. And so it's been, it's been, you know, pretty good for people. Yeah, it's a great article. And uh, you also write that you could do 80 push-ups, 20 pull-ups and a bench press with 1.5 of your body weight. I'm pretty impressed because I also was doing athletics in my early days, you know. So, and how did you get from there to the investing world? Please tell us a little bit about your story, your professional path, and what's your current position or project? Sure. So my initial career path went into engineering, so electrical engineering. And I, I did industrial automation for a little bit, but then I shifted into aircraft simulation with an emphasis on, you know, the control systems and electrical systems for, you know, those systems. Then I shifted more into uh, engineering management. So, you know, in the, in the financial side of that. So I would oversee the facilities purchases and serve as the head engineer for the facility and kind of, you know, manage the overall projects. Aside from that, I've just always been interested in investing. And there's kind of a natural overlap between engineering and investing because they're both, they're both very quantitative, uh, very investigative. 
So, you know, I've been following the market since even before I was an engineer, so ever since I was a teenager. And so it's always been a side uh, passion of mine. But over the last, uh, you know, five years or so, I've really kind of brought it to the forefront uh, to kind of make that my, my main business just because uh, it's, you know, such a passion of mine and uh, it's, it's been a great ride to share it with people. Mm-hmm. And is this, is it still a side business? Are you doing uh, two jobs at the moment in a way, or is this going to be your first business? This is my it's a primary business at the moment, uh, but I also still do engineering management for the facility. So I still do I oversee the finances and and you know kind of the main decision making for for the, kind of the day to day operations at an engineering facility. Mm-hmm, great. And when and how did you hear about Bitcoin the first time? Oh, well, the first time was way back. I think it was around 2011 or so. It's a shame I didn't invest back then, but <laughs> I had a I knew someone that could. It was back in the days when you can literally mine it on a computer, right? So it was it was it wasn't industrialized like it is now. So you know she was able to just kind of mine it on her like uh, gaming computer back when it was very cheap, and I thought it was neat. Like I I understood the basic idea of it. Uh, I just didn't really have a way to price it or you know kind of value it. So I just kind of thought it was something that was neat, and then. Back in 2017, when it had that pretty big bull run, you know, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies all had that, that really strong bull market that year. I started getting tons of emails from people, you know, asking my thoughts on, on cryptocurrencies. Uh, so I wrote my first article in the autumn of 2017, and I, I covered Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies from a few different angles. And my overall outlook at the time was was it was kind of bearish to neutral, right? So I didn't, I didn't dismiss it outright, but because there was so much positive sentiment and, you know, I kind of approached it from a couple different angles, like either looking at Bitcoin as a medium of exchange or looking at it as a store of value. And, you know, the medium exchange situation, uh, it appeared overvalued to me, whereas a store of value was more interesting at the time. Uh, however, at, at, you know, in that uh, period, I stayed away and it was about in the you know, it's funny during the course of writing the article that it was such a strong bull market that when I started writing the article, it was like six thousand, and by the time I finished the article, it was like eight thousand. But so I kind of, you know, just kind of put that on the back burner, and of course, in the rest of the year, it you know it spiked all the way up to you know roughly twenty thousand, and then it, it fell to below four thousand the next year, and it's been in this it's been in this pretty wide consolidation pattern since then, and early. This year, in March and April, when we had that big liquidity sell-off, I was watching Bitcoin to see how it behaves. And it behaved a lot like precious metals. And for a variety of reasons, after doing a lot of research on it, I went long uh, in April. So it was it was kind of a big round trip because I, I went long in the upper 6,000s, like around 6,900 or so. And it was about the same price that I evaluated two and a half years prior in the fall of 2017. However, there are a variety of macro factors and also just where we are in the halving cycle with Bitcoin. There are a bunch of factors that made me a lot more bullish this time around. Hmm. And your friend who mined Bitcoin, did she stick with it? That's actually the funny thing. I have no idea because I haven't, I haven't spoken with her in years. I hope so. She Maybe she's rich on some island somewhere. <laughs> yeah, we hope so. I hope so too for her. Yeah. So let's uh, let's take a macro view at the beginning, please. What would you say? How serious is the situation at the moment? What's your outlook regarding the economy for the coming, say, five years? 
Uh, I definitely think it's a pretty serious situation. Uh, you know, the, the pandemic itself, of course, has been a, a pretty big impact on economies, both economies that have, you know, shut down and even ones that have tried to, to re- stay more open. They've all experienced different levels of economic impact from this, especially because we're also globally connected. But then uh, aside from that, it's, it's the foundations that were in place before this crisis that are a big issue. So in most of the Western world, uh, we have very high debt levels as a percentage of GDP. And if you look back in history, you know, there's, there's always these shorter term business cycles that last five or 10 years where, you know, businesses accumulate debt and then there's a recession and then there's some sort of deleveraging event and then they kind of start fresh. But if you look over the very long term, you know, that debt kind of tends to accumulate from business cycle to business cycle. And after, you know, 50 years or, or sometimes, you know, longer, you can accumulate very high levels of debt in a society you know, and especially when it gets on the sovereign level, there's not really a lot of, you know, release valves for that. And historically, when you get to that sort of situation, you're likely to see currency devaluations, you know, major kind of expansions in the money supply, because, you know, most countries, rather than ever default on currency, on debts that are denominated in their own currencies, usually they, you know, default in real terms. So for example, we see, we've seen this in the United States multiple times in our past where, you know, we've never defaulted on treasuries, but we have, you know, inflated treasury value away, essentially. So I think we're in a period now where, you know, the world has so much debt where they went into this crisis. And of course, this crisis itself uh, is a very impactful for, for modern life. And then, but just that whole backdrop makes it so much worse. So that will mean like many more jobs lost, people on the streets, homelessness, no medical um, support anymore, these kinds of things. Well, I don't think, I hope it doesn't get that bad. I think it's just, it's mostly, it's also going to depend on how different countries handle it, right? So, you know, I'm not, I'm not, looking at something uh, quite that severe, but it's more just like we're going through a period where, you know, it depends on the country. In the United States, for example, we have a lot of wealth concentration. So uh, the bottom half of our population uh, doesn't really have much wealth and they live paycheck to paycheck. And we have about 30 million people here, for example, that uh, don't have a job. So they're on some sort of unemployment benefit. So there's about 17 million people that lost uh, jobs. And then in addition, because so many self-employed people uh, lost income, there's also assistance for them, which is like another 12 million people. So it's about 30 million people that are on some sort of jobless support. And it's just, it's a, a very fluid situation. It's a far larger amount, for example, that happened during the global financial crisis. Now, so far, many uh, European countries, especially in, in you know Northern Europe, have have so far, your unemployment situation, I believe, is, is not as bad as ours in most cases, but it's, it's a very different system, right? So each, mm-hmm. each country kind of has their own pros and cons and their own way of doing things. But the thing that most of these countries have in common is that they have pretty high debt levels, you know, whether you look at the sovereign level, the corporate level, or the household level. And this is just a, a very problematic environment for a financial system that relies on kind of increasing leverage, increasing growth at all times. If you go through a period when you already have debt this high and you go through a kind of a multi-year period where growth can struggle, you know, that can, that can cause a lot of issues. And usually the currencies are the release valve. So we've seen, for example, very strong appreciation in gold. And another way of looking at that is that most currencies in recent years have lost a lot of value compared to gold. Hmm. And also, I found in one of your tweets, I think, the the so-called NIIP, the Net International Investment Position. 
And this shows a negative 9.7 trillion on the side of the US. And so the US was once the world's largest credit donation and now it's the world's largest debt donation. So is this a reason that the power balance or the distribution in between nations uh, will change? Uh, it certainly could. So yeah, the way we've actually ironically had that develop in part because we've had the global reserve currency. So after the world wars, uh, the United States, as you, as you mentioned, was the largest creditor nation. And what that means is that Americans owned more foreign assets than foreigners owned of American assets. However, over decades of running persistent trade deficits and current account balances, foreigners have gradually accumulated more and more U.S. assets. And part of running the world reserve currency is that, you know, you have to, in order for the whole world to kind of price commodities and dollars, right, there has to be enough dollars out in the world for them to be able to do that. And so the way that normally works is that the, the global reserve country has to run uh, pretty persistent trade deficits in order to get their currency out into the world. And that kind of becomes self-perpetuating because once a currency is the global reserve currency, there's a lot of demand for it. And that helps kind of make it overvalued. And that helps, you know, it gives that country more importing power, but reduces their export competitiveness in a lot of areas. Uh, and that leads to trade deficits. So the United States has had decades of, of trade deficits and current account uh, deficits. And so over time, uh, we shifted from uh, creditor nation to debtor nation. So the, the actual switchover happened in about 1985. But then, you know, the next like 15 or 20 years, it was still very minor. But then in the past 10 or 15 years, it really moved pretty sharply to the downside. So now the United States net international investment position is a about negative 50% of our GDP. So the last figure I saw was actually about 11 trillion uh, US dollars, uh, which is about half of our GDP. Whereas if you look at, for example, Japan and Germany, uh, they're, they're the largest uh, creditor nations. And if you look at it on a percent basis, also countries like Switzerland, Taiwan, Singapore, those are very high creditor nations, but they're, of course, they're, they're smaller uh, countries. And what that generally means, you know, for the US, for example, is that we've historically been relied uh, relied heavily on foreigners buying our treasuries uh, to fund our deficits. But what we've seen in recent years is that the foreign sector has not really been purchasing treasuries. And so the Federal Reserve has had to print a lot of dollars to buy our own treasuries uh, to kind of make up for that lack of foreign demand. And historically, that's that's you know not been great for a currency. So for example, when we had the repo spike back in September, so we had a big spike in the overnight lending rate. And for a variety of reasons, the United States Federal Reserve had to begin buying treasuries around that time. And since then, I've, I've shifted to being a somewhat more bearish on the dollar. Which country do you think uh, will have the next global reserve currency? So my, my base case is that there will be no single global reserve currency because if you look at, for example, the U.S. after World War II and when we really established that position, you know, with Europe damaged from the war and, you know, just, just many places around the world that were troubled, the United States was a very large percentage of global GDP. And we were by far the largest commodity uh, importer. So it, it, it gave us a way to kind of establish that currency system. But over time, after many decades, uh, you know, we've had faster growth from emerging markets. We've also had a recovery in, in Europe and Japan. And so the, the United States share of global GDP has continued to decrease, right? So it used to be, you know, close to like 40% of global GDP. And now it's, it's somewhere in the low 20% 
uh, range for global GDP. And it's actually somewhere around 15% if you look at it on a purchasing power adjusted basis. And we're no longer the biggest commodity importer. That's actually China now. So, however, there's no country that's a large enough share of GDP compared to what the United States had after World Wars that they could realistically establish that sort of situation. So, my base case is that we're going to see probably eventually a, a more multipolar currency world, which means we could see, for example, more commodity pricing in other currencies as well as the dollar. And we could see just kind of alternate payment systems, especially uh, from China, from Russia, uh, from Europe, some, from places like that. where We could see kind of more diversification of, of the major currencies uh, used in global trade. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the little price action we saw in the last days with Bitcoin going over 10,000 US dollars again, do you think is this the start that people hedge against the, the depreciation of their currencies? Uh, that's hard to say because it's also part of my bullish case for Bitcoin is uh It hit, most of the bullishness uh, price action in Bitcoin happens in the first year or two after having. If you count the launch cycle and then the three halvings, we're now in the fourth cycle for Bitcoin. They each last a little bit under four years. And historically, this period is very good for Bitcoin pricing on average. So it's hard to say if this price action is specifically due to macro events or, or because of just kind of natural demand for the Bitcoin protocol. But I certainly think it doesn't hurt. So if you look back in March, for example, Bitcoin had a very sharp sell-off. And that certainly was more tied to the macro situation just because the whole world had just a sudden shortage of dollars, for example. And we had a, a very sharp liquidity problem. So we had a sell-off in assets like stocks. We had sell-offs in precious metals. We had sell-offs in Bitcoin. However, ever since then, a lot of those things have recovered. We've had a lot of liquidity injections by central banks. We've had a, just a more reflationary macro situation. And I do think Bitcoin benefits from these trends, but it's also because it's a pretty small asset class still, and it kind of operates on its own cycle. I do think that the reduction in new supply of Bitcoin is also playing a part here. Hmm. So what are the main reasons why you are bullish on Bitcoin? Yeah, so the three main reasons I outlined in the article. The first uh, reason is that Bitcoin has, has demonstrated that it has a pretty strong network effect over time. So when I analyzed Bitcoin back in 2017, uh, that was that, that giant altcoin bull period. So we had kind of Bitcoin lose some market share compared to some of those other currencies. However, since then, Bitcoin has retained a lot of its market share. And even though at the moment we're kind of in another alt season, right? So we're seeing a little bit of a decrease in Bitcoin's market share. It's Bitcoin's proven itself now over 11 years of being able to retain strong market share. It has the highest, you know, security, like the highest hash rate uh, among cryptocurrencies. And it's, you know, it has like the strongest network effect. So in addition to the whole, you know, a lot of companies kind of operating in the cryptocurrency ecosystem, there's also a lot of Bitcoin specific companies, like companies that, that only uh, deal with Bitcoin. And that, that holds pretty well for its prospects going forward when there's such a strong community built around that specific uh, protocol. The second reason uh, is the halving. So as I mentioned, most of the bullish price action of Bitcoin tends to happen in the first year or two after a halving, whereas usually two years after that, kind of the second two years of the of the halving cycle, that tends to be more about consolidation and volatility. So a lot of the bullishness uh, happens usually, you know, after the halving, and that's because you know, if there's persistent demand for Bitcoin, however, the, the flow of new coins is reduced and a lot of uh, people are holding their Bitcoin, so they're not selling their Bitcoin. Uh, you can look at, for example, statistics that show that something like over 60% of Bitcoin supply hasn't moved in the past year. 
And this is a pretty consistent pattern that we see uh, over the course of Bitcoin's uh, relatively short life cycle so far. And so I think there's a lot of catalysts that say that if if Bitcoin's going to have a moment, uh, I think the next uh, you know year or two is a very high probability time for that to happen, uh, just because of where we are in the halving cycle. And then the final reason was that, as we just discussed, that the macro backdrop pretty much couldn't be better for Bitcoin and, and also for, for things like silver. And that's because with so much money printing, with so much bailouts happening, and if you look at it historically, just whenever debt levels reach this high, uh, there's usually some sort of uh, macroeconomic event, like a currency devaluation uh, that happens over the subsequent decade. And so I do think we're going to see kind of a, a very unusual macro environment for the next, at least call it five years or more. And scarce assets such as Bitcoin, gold, silver, certain types of other commodities or certain types of appropriately priced real estate, those scarce assets can hold up well in that sort of environment. Bitcoin was kind of born in the previous crisis. And I think this crisis, especially the aftermath of it with so much policy response, is likely to be very bullish for it. Mm. And I mean, for me, it's much easier to buy a fraction of a Bitcoin than to buy a house. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> to definitely. my wealth, yeah. Yeah, housing is very illiquid, whereas Bitcoin, you know, in fact, one of the advantages of Bitcoin is that it's in most ways more liquid than, than say, gold and silver are. Yeah, and I can start with a small amount. Exactly, and, yeah. Uh, anyone, uh, anyone can buy a fraction, yeah. Exactly. So uh, talking about the network effect and security, how is it that a new cryptocurrency that would be superior to Bitcoin based on speed or efficiency still would find it nearly impossible to catch up with Bitcoin's security? Sure, yeah, that's something I discussed uh, in the article. So mm -hmm. we've had kind of, I mean, now there's something like over 5,000 cryptocurrencies in, in one form or another. And a lot of them profess to have some sort of advantage over Bitcoin. You know, some of them are faster, some of them are, you know, more energy efficient, some of them, they all have these different claims of, of things they want to uh, do that supposedly improve on Bitcoin. However, they make trade-offs. So all of those uh, improvements that they make come with some sort of trade-off. So the advantage of Bitcoin is that it's a very lean protocol. It's uh, fairly easy to run a, a full node, for example, whereas some of those other currencies, it's, it's very hard to run your own node. So Bitcoin is uh, easily verifiable. You can verify the whole supply. It's very kind of simple and lean. And importantly, there's so much hash rate protecting the security of the protocol, right? So some of those weaker cryptocurrencies, even if they have certain advantages in some ways, uh, they also have trade-offs. And in their early stages, they don't really have much security backing them up. And they also tend to be very uh, centralized in some cases. So Bitcoin's combination of being uh, somewhat decentralized, having so much power kind of among the nodes that are very decentralized, anyone can run a node, uh, that gives Bitcoin a ton of advantages over a lot of these other cryptocurrencies, in my opinion. Mm. Do you run your own node? I personally don't know. No. And what would you say to Libra, like the competitor of Bitcoin? Is it a competitor? I mean, it's something completely different, I know, but still it could be easier with like over 2 billion people on Facebook. It would be much easier to get them on board. Sure. I think it's, it's not necessarily a competitor. It's just, it's, as you mentioned, it's very different. So for example, You know, you, you can consider, for example, the dollar and gold to be competitors, right? But they're also very different. So with the Libra, 
you know, it uses some of the technology that we've had developed in the blockchain space over the past decade and applies that to fiat currency. So the Libra would be a basket of, of multiple major currencies, you know, wrapped in, in somewhat of a stable coin packaging. And, I, you know, I think it's, a, it's an interesting idea just because, as I mentioned before, there's really no economy large enough to kind of have the global reserve currency anymore, just, be, just because how the world's, you know, kind of matured and diversified. And we've actually had a lot of problems from, you know, even in the US from having uh, just, just so much centralization of currency. And one thing the Libra tries to do is to basically package the a large portion of the global money supply in, a, you know, kind of a stable coin package. So it's got, it would have dollars, it would have euros, it would have a variety of different currencies in it. And I think that, you know, it could definitely introduce people, uh, more people to Bitcoin. So in some ways it could, it could help Bitcoin, right? Because it could get more people, you know, familiar with this sort of technology. And, uh, you know, Facebook has so many users and it kind of just, it ventures into a whole realm of corporations being able to release their own types of money. So for example, if you look back in, in longer history, right, banks used to, to issue their own currency and it was backed by the trust in that bank. But in recent uh, years, we've been very kind of focused on sovereign issued currency. And ever since Bitcoin was invented, it kind of opened the floodgate again for uh, corporations being able to introduce their own currencies. And then of course, in Bitcoin's case, it's totally decentralized, which is one of its advantages. So I don't really see the Libra as a competitor Bitcoin. If anything, it's it's kind of a competitor to sovereign bank, you know, sovereign country currencies to, to a limited degree. And it also could be an on-ramp to Bitcoin to get more people interested uh, in the cryptocurrency space. Because unlike Bitcoin, the Libra won't be limited. It won't be scarce. That It's based on currencies that can be printed as much as central banks want, whereas Bitcoin uh, is a scarce asset. So it's, it's kind of like comparing apples to oranges. Hmm. Is comparing Bitcoin to gold also comparing apples and oranges? I consider that uh, somewhat of a closer comparison, right? Because they're they're both scarce assets that are used as uh, stores of value. So even even Satoshi himself, when he was describing Bitcoin, he kind of he said, "Imagine there's this commodity, right? That's it's it's gray. It's not very conductive. It's not very strong, but it has a unique property of being able to be transported over a communication channel." Uh, so that's that's it. Kind of showed one of the ways that he thinks about Bitcoin, which is like a digital commodity, uh, especially one that has like a, a monetary aspect to it. So the main aspect of both gold and Bitcoin is they have high stock to flow ratio, and they're primarily used for their monetary value rather than industrial value. So for example, if you look at commodities like silver, copper, uh, oil, uh, they they tend to have very strong industrial elements, whereas gold and Bitcoin are unique in that they are uh, very rare and most of their use is as stores of value uh, and in some cases medium of exchange. Mm -hmm. Many critics of Bitcoin say that it can't be money or an asset because it has no intrinsic value, because it cannot be used for industrial purposes as gold can. But I think you also write about that in the article. Yeah, I addressed that a little bit. I, I said I, I consider that about 10% valid because gold has about 10% industrial use. Uh, and the other 90% of gold's demand is from uh, bullion and jewelry, which are, are very based on sentiment and just viewing it as a store of wealth. So, for example, if gold ever lost its network effect, if people ever didn't want to store wealth in gold, and if the primarily demand was just industrial, it would lose a lot of this monetary premium. So gold is expensive in part because it has that monetary premium. So it is susceptible to a network effect. 
Bitcoin, it doesn't have that industrial use, but uh, its monetary use is in many ways superior to gold in the sense that it's it's more easily uh, transportable, portable, verifiable, things like that. So uh, I do think it was a valid concern, especially in the beginning. But as you've seen this network de- uh, effect develop so strongly around Bitcoin, in many ways, it's kind of developed that same monetary status as gold. But people can use, people have different philosophies for what they view as money. So they can always kind of diversify or uh, manage position sizes so they don't make too much of a bet on any one commodity or any one form of money. Mm -hmm. You also write in your article that currencies tend to have a winner-take-most phenomena. Why is that the case? And could this be the case for Bitcoin too? Yeah, so the thing about a currency is it it benefits from the network effect. And you know, one example, for example, is is a social network, right? So, so anyone can go and make like a new, like a copy of Facebook, right? You can make a little social network website, and it's got your friends on it. It's got like ten people on it, and it's just it's really hard to build that out to something that's this large, right? Uh, whereas some of the large social networks, they manage to succeed for one reason or another. And they get so large that they become it becomes a virtuous cycle. So they attract more and more people. And because there's so many people on it, it increases the value of that network. So you feel like you have to be on it because all your friends are on it, all your family's on it, business contacts are on it. And so currencies are kind of the same way where when a currency becomes more widely viewed as money and more widely accepted, uh, it increases demand for it uh, because when someone buys it, they know that they can find someone that, that they'll be able to sell it to in the future. Right, so you know, most of us would be cautious about, say, taking currency from a, from a small country that we don't do business in, right? Because if we had currency, we weren't sure how who we're going to give that currency to in the future. We we, we don't know if it's going to retain its value. Whereas some of the major currencies like dollars and euros, because they're accepted in so many places and they're easily exchangeable, we we view them as money and we're we're able to uh, demand them pretty heavily. Bitcoin, b- because it's the first cryptocurrency and because uh, it's been so successful. It's, it's widely accepted pretty much across the world, uh, especially in niche circles, right? So you can't just go into any store and use Bitcoin. However, in, in many countries around the world, you can find ways to to trade your Bitcoin for other currencies. So in that sense, even though there's now thousands of cryptocurrencies, most of them uh, don't have a lot of acceptance, whereas the, the top one or two that have uh, most of the acceptance, they tend to kind of retain that mantle over time. They continue to to build that network effect because they've already established such a strong position. Do you also invest in altcoins or would that be just like gambling in a way for you? Yeah, I personally just invest in Bitcoin. So, you know, people are free to invest in altcoins. Uh, there's certainly trading opportunities people can have with them because they tend to be very volatile. Uh, and when we have these Bitcoin bull runs, it can bring a lot of altcoins with them. In some cases, altcoins can front run Bitcoins, right? So when people are getting more bullish on the space, they might go in and, and buy some altcoins. But personally, for me, I just prefer Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And what do you say to your followers? I mean, should they buy derivatives, for instance, or the, uh, the real Bitcoin? Well, it depends. I mean, I, I prefer to hold the real Bitcoin because a lot of the bullishness happens in the first year or two of a, of a halving cycle. There are some people that, that make speculative bets with a very specific time frame, right? So if you're very bullish on Bitcoin over the next, call it 12 to 18 months, there are certain derivative contracts you can do that if you're correct, you can maximize your gains compared to buying Bitcoin outright. However, from a risk reward perspective, I prefer to, to hold the actual Bitcoin. And there are a couple other products that can, that can you know, get Bitcoin and other types of accounts, but where possible, I prefer to hold the actual Bitcoin. 
Mm. You also made some estimations for the price of Bitcoin in the future. What's your current estimate? In which time frame? And what are the foundations of these? Sure. So if you look at um, the previous halving cycles, we're currently in the fourth cycle, if you include the launch cycle, they've all generally had the same uh, shape of price action. So in the first uh, you know, 12 to 24 months after launch or after the halving, we have a very strong bull run uh, in the price action. And then that kind of pulls momentum uh, traders in and speculative investors. And we usually get some sort of blow off top. And then we have a, you know, kind of a longer period of consolidation, right? That could last a year. It could last two years or more. And then by the time the next halving comes, we get another reduction in supply and we start to see kind of another bull run. Uh, so my time frame for this current outlook is the next, I'm calling about 18 months, but it could be, you know, 12 to 24 months that I expect to see some pretty bullish price action on Bitcoin. And I don't have a specific price target, but I have, a, I, I kind of shared a couple different ranges. Uh, so if you look at the previous cycles, Each cycle had kind of a smaller magnitude than the prior one. So the, the first cycle had, you know, an infinite gain because it went from worth nothing to, to some at one point worth over $20. And then the second cycle, the peak hit over a thousand, right? So it had about a 50 fold increase from the, from the high in its previous cycle. And then the next cycle after that touched in the ballpark of 20,000. So it was about a 20 fold increase over the previous high. And so my base case is that, you know, we're going to see this pattern likely play out again, where we see a smaller increase from the previous high, right? So definitely I, I would expect under 20, you know, increase, but that could be, for example, a five-fold increase. It could be a three-fold increase. It could be a 10-fold increase. I don't, I don't try to guess uh, how high it's going to go. I think that depends on a lot of factors, uh, including just uh, trading sentiment, right? Because, you know, when we hit that peak, all sorts of things can happen. Uh, so my base case is that we're going to see new all-time highs in the next uh, 12 to 24 months. I expect them to be uh, pretty considerably above the previous highs. I, I just don't have a specific price range other than that I expect it to be a, you know, kind of a smaller increase in the prior cycle in percent terms, but still quite meaningful. Mm -hmm. I often hear people say, it's too late to invest in Bitcoin. What do you think about that? I think if you look at it, the price chart in log form, it, it, it creates a pretty clear pattern of how this asset behaves over the course of its roughly four-year cycles. Part of my case against it in late 2017 is that I did feel it was late at that time, right? Because we had so much bullishness, so much enthusiasm. I would turn on to major news networks and see them talking about Bitcoin all the time. And so that was a concern. In that environment, I considered it kind of a little bit too late in the near term to, to purchase it. However, we've had a very long consolidation period here. I, I I personally don't think it's too late. It's a very small asset class still. The whole, I haven't checked the numbers recently, but all of Bitcoin markets cap is worth, you know, roughly 200 billion or less. So I think when I wrote this article it was something like 170 billion, we've had a price increase, it's probably around 200 billion now. But that, and that sounds like a lot, right? Because it's the size of a large company, for example. However, Credit Suisse estimates that there's, you know, over uh, $360 trillion in global wealth. And so Bitcoin is less than a tenth of 1% of global wealth. It's still, it's still a very small asset class. It's also very small compared to gold. So gold's uh, market capitalization is somewhere in the ballpark of, of seven to $10 trillion, you know, depending on price levels and depending on how, how accurate the estimates are from the World Gold Council. 
and other estimates. So Bitcoin's market cap is still smaller than silver, and it's still a very small fraction of gold. So even if even if Bitcoin were to increase tenfold, for example, and, and, be, and reach like a $2 trillion market capitalization, that's a, still a very small segment of, of global wealth for an asset that is a very unique thing, right? So it's not a single stock. Uh, it's not a single kind of uh, you know niche commodity it's it's something that's globally available and so it's still very small considering the the context that it could grow to do you think that bitcoin still could fail like uh, go to zero i think anything could fail right so no one should take for granted that something cannot ever fail right i think investors should for example use some sort of diversification to make sure that they that they have a risk appropriate for their situation i like to say with bitcoin that you know A lot of my article was addressed to people that have no exposure to Bitcoin, right? So, so just generalist investors. And so even having a 1% allocation of Bitcoin is technically an overweight position because Bitcoin is less than one-tenth of 1% of global uh, you know, market wealth. So I do think uh, there's a good reason to have at least some exposure to Bitcoin. And then for people that are very knowledgeable in the space, that have their own convictions, that have a ton of research that they've done, that even that work in the industry, it's definitely easier to argue for much higher allocations for people that are willing to take on that risk and that have that kind of very, very knowledge calculated uh, bet for the, for the success of the protocol. So I do think, uh, of course, it's possible that the protocol could fail. Uh, however, uh, my base case is that I expect it to do uh, pretty well in the foreseeable future. One thing to watch for potentially uh, as, as, as a failing is to see uh, if it ever has a, a bad halving cycle, right? So that, so as I mentioned, the, the previous cycles all did very well, especially when, when new supply decreased. But if Bitcoin were, for example, to have a, a very bad halving cycle this time and its market cap were to continue to fail to grow, uh, we'd have to reevaluate to see what's happening with the space. But overall, the log chart is, is very Uh, healthy, in my opinion. Mm. I'm sure you've seen last week's OCC letter that allows for US banks to hold crypto assets on behalf of their clients. Now, how good news is this? Do you think that the demand for Bitcoin will grow? I think it could. Uh, that that could take a little while to build out because a lot of banks aren't ready uh, to to do that yet. But and there there are uh, specialists that focus on that uh, specific area, the intersection of banks and, and Bitcoin. Uh, so they would have mm. more to say about the details. However, uh, one thing that certainly helps with is that one of the concerns people have, and I know that you know, for example, when I wrote my article, I got a ton of emails from people from readers just asking me different questions. And one of the concerns people have is what if governments ban it, right? So what if what if you know it, it's it's banned in the United States and it's banned in Europe and it becomes something that's it's like a black market commodity as it is in, in some countries. And and the concern is that that could kill demand or at least like diminish demand among you know institutions obviously and also just you know among investors that don't want to break the law. Uh, however, this this sort of decision shows that it's, it's going in the opposite direction. It's going towards the direction of more acceptance, you know, at least in the U.S. here at the moment due to that decision. So I do think it's it's a very favorable decision, you know, that that could benefit Bitcoin in the long run. Hmm. What is fascinating you the most with Bitcoin? I mean, which feature or characteristic of Bitcoin? I think the whole thing is just very interesting. As someone with like a, a technical and financial background, it just it blends so many things. So you know, it, it blends economics, it blends technology, it blends kind of game theory associated with the four-year having cycles. Just the idea of the creation of digital scarcity, 
and then the specific aspect of how it kind of it kind of adjusts its difficulty based on uh, whether miners are successful or not to make sure that it always has mining rather than to fail. I like the the halving cycle. I like the fact that you know it has these these big reductions in new supply, you know, every four years or so, rather than just like a steadily uh, decline. Uh, in new supply production, so I like I like so many details of this protocol. I like how lean it is. I like how verifiable it is. Uh, it's definitely just a very elegant creation. What is the thing about or in Bitcoin that nobody is talking about but should be more known? Hmm. I'm not sure particularly. I would just say uh, I think a lot of people that don't study Bitcoin don't really focus on the details of the halving cycle and how that historically has played into price action. So of course, people within the community are very uh, aware of that the dynamic. However, uh, many people that I've talked to that have heard about Bitcoin and they think that just it's, it's purely speculative, like there's no rhyme or reason at all to its price action over the years. But when you look at the chart in log form, and when you look at the halving cycles, and when you understand kind of uh, the math of, of what happens when people are holding it and there's new supply reductions and more people still want to come into the space, what that can do for the price action. I think when you put that all together, I think it could make sophisticated generalist investors come into the space more if they took the time to understand it. So, for example, Paul Tudor Jones back in May uh, publicly uh, came out in favor of Bitcoin. And he's one of the largest uh, investors, a very famous investor. And I think that there are a lot of other major investors that have dismissed it, right? So whether it's it's Warren Buffett or Ray Dalio, I think if they spent more time looking at some of the details of the protocol and some of the details of the network effect and this, the ecosystem of surrounding companies, I think that they would become more bullish on it in the future. A side question, you have a lot of clients. How many female investors do you have who are interested in Bitcoin? I haven't done uh, any sort of detailed statistics on it. I would say that probably about a, a third of my readers are female. Probably about three quarters of the questions I got about Bitcoin were from men, but I would have to go back and analyze it in terms of statistics. There's definitely more interest that I've seen among men, but I have received uh, questions from women as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. I mean, it's the same here. I have like a third of my interviews are with women. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Lynn, thank you very much. Do you think we've missed a point that uh, we should include anything you want to say? No, I, I think this is just a very interesting time for, for the Bitcoin protocol and for, for kind of scarce assets in general. We've had a pretty interesting breakout in price action recently. And I don't know if that's going to hold or not. Like, I don't really make short-term trading calls. But I do think it deserves a position in a portfolio over the next, at least the next uh, couple of years to see how it plays out. And, you know, just people can always kind of adjust the position size based on their amount of knowledge and their amount of conviction in the asset class. Uh, I think it's a very useful technology and I think we're going to see good things from it in the years ahead. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Please tell our listeners where they can find and follow you and your work. Uh, sure. I'm on lynnalden.com uh, and I, I have a bunch of free articles there. I also have a premium research service uh, and I'm on Twitter at lynnaldencontact. Thank you very much. This was a great conversation. I've learned a lot again. Thank you and have a good day. Yep. You too. Thank you. That's it for today. If you like my show, please share it with your friends and hit the subscribe button in your podcast player now. Thanks to my sponsors who make it possible that I can produce the show. Localbitcoins.com, Shift Crypto with the Bitbox O2 and Coinfinity with their card wallet. Music. Start with yes. Delicate beats. Idea, content and production. Yours truly, Anita Posch. <laughs>